following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. National Prayer Chapel, we know from the study of Scripture that sin is simply a part of the human nature. It is part of the human experience. It is both an act and the human nature. Let's review. Sin as an act 
is a manifestation of the flesh. It is also an inward quality. It is a state of the inward propensity. It is an inclination to engage in sinful acts. It is hatred, enmity, toward God. So man's sin is a twofold. It is a sin or an act, harmatia, or it is a manifestation out of the the very heart of the enmity built into our soul at birth against the living God of heaven. We believe that sin, neither as an act nor as a, a nature, can stand before the power of the blood of Jesus and not be broken. The blood of Jesus that was shed on Calvary's cross has prevailed in behalf of all fallen mankind. His blood was shed that sins or sinful acts may be removed and that the nature can be cleansed. Now, I want to share with you today a story from Scripture that will lay out these principles very, very clearly. The name of today's broadcast is Do Not Despise the Word of God. Do not despise the word of God. Now let's pray. Lord, it's not an idle question. Have you been washed in the blood of Jesus? It is the question. And in the washing that you give to us, in the cleansing that you give to us, You forgive us for our sins and you wash away that evil nature that all of us were born with. Lord, I rejoice in that truth. That sin is natural to the propensity passed to us by Adam. But it is not natural to the new man who is found in you, Jesus, who has been washed in the blood. So, Lord, today I plead that you would open the mind and the heart of every person listening, that they could see clearly a two-part work of grace, having nothing to do with covering over and pretending that we are not of the children of Adam. Lord, not pretending that we must continue to be lepers even though we've been healed of our leprosy. Lord, thank you. Would you move in power today in this broadcast to bring understanding to the heart of your people. I pray in your holy name. Amen. One of the most evil and 
dastardly things done in all of Scripture was done by a man whom the Scripture says was after the heart of God. This deed is so wicked it's embarrassing to even speak about it. But part of what God does is he talks about everything. He's not willing to let anyone or anything lay without uncovering it in all of its ugliness because he knows that on the cross he offered the healing and the removal of even the most ugly sin. We find it in Second Samuel, the 11th chapter. The setup is that it's time for kings to go to war. It's in the springtime. The weather is pleasant and warm. And David, instead of doing what he normally does in going off with the men to war, he stays home. And I suspect he's a bit bored. And so he goes up on the flat roof of his palace and he begins to survey the neighborhood. And his eyes come to rest on a beautiful woman who is taking a bath, who does not expect to be spied upon. Her name is Bathsheba. Now David has just gotten up, we discover, from laying down on his bed where he cannot go to sleep. And he sees this woman bathing, and she is very beautiful, and it is the perfect setup for sin. And you'll see in just a moment that something rises up in David's heart out of the depth of David's being that says, find out who that woman is and bring her to me. You see, sin does not just happen. Sin is a voluntary response to the evil nature that rises up in the heart of man or a woman or a child because children are born as little sinners too with hatred toward God. And if not for the grace of God, none of us could be saved None of us could repent if it were not for the grace of God. Grace being defined in Titus as that divine influence that we spoke of yesterday in Genesis 3.15 where God promised enmity would be placed, hatred would be placed in a small part of man's heart against the devil, giving us an opportunity to repent. Well, David at this point is in no mood to repent. He's in a mood to play. And so all of the wickedness of his heart rises up and he orders his servants to go find out who this is and to bring her to him. And he finds out that she is the wife of one of his mighty men. Now, I don't know if he was prejudiced because Uriah was not Jewish. 
Maybe that gave him permission to violate her. His chief counselor was her grandpa. And later this would cause great trouble as grandpa would join the rebellion with Absalom. David sent messengers to get her. And the scriptures say she came to him. She did not need to come to him. She shares also in the sin. But he's the handsome king. And she has just bathed herself from her period. She has gone through the ritual cleansing. Her husband is not around. He's off to war like David should have been. The Bible is very terse. It simply says, She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home and everything is fine. Nobody will know the difference except people do know because servants went and got her and brought her. But they both say, no, no, everything's fine. It's back to normal. Uriah will come back and and our life will go on. The woman, however, had conceived and she sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. I'm sure David thought long and hard about how to deal with this so that he could cover it up and maintain his dignity. He didn't want this word getting out. He didn't want Uriah to find out. There would have been a fight to the death had Uriah found out. He would have challenged David to fight to the death because Uriah was a man of honor, and David had lost his honor. Word was sent to Joab, the general, the commander, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Job sent him to David. Uriah came, and David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was progressing. And then he said to him, Now go on home and wash your feet. In other words, go home and get in bed with your wife. And a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah did not go home. He slept at the entrance to the palace with all of the other servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah's answer brings double shame on David. He is not Jewish, remember. But he says, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house eat and drink and lie with my wife as surely as you live I will not do such a thing 
Oh, the honor of this, of this man, shames David. Shames him to the very core. So David says to him, stay one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back to Joab. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, and the next day, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. How could David sit at the table and eat with Uriah, knowing that he had violated the man's wife, that she was pregnant with his baby, and now he wants to eat with this man like they were brothers? In that culture, if you sat and ate with another person, you could not harm that person. But David had harmed Uriah. He had violated Bathsheba. After the meal and drunk, Uriah goes out and he sleeps on his mat among his master's servants and he did not go home. David, I'm sure, stayed awake much of the night trying to figure out how am I going to handle this and finally he said there's only one answer. Either I have to die or Uriah has to die. I'm the king, Uriah dies. So he wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it with Uriah and in it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fierce and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. He sends this letter. The death sentence he sends with Uriah. How do you sugarcoat this? How do you pretend there's any righteousness in this? Uriah is put at a place where the strongest defenders were, and when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So David is not just sacrificing Uriah, he is also sacrificing other fathers, other husbands, other men of Israel, Jewish men. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, when, the, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? But David was not angry when he heard the word. Instead, he comforted the man. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. What a cavalier attitude toward the life of Uriah the Hittite and toward the lives of his other soldiers. This is utter bitterness. And there is this very terse note at the end of this chapter 11, Second Samuel chapter 11.
Uriah's wife hears that he is dead, and she mourns for him. With a bitterly guilty conscience, I might add, knowing that she is pregnant with David's baby. And as soon as the time of mourning is over, David has her brought once more to his house. I wonder what they said to each other when they met on the second meeting. Because she knows all of David's wickedness. He makes her his wife. She bears him the son. So we know that nine months have now passed by. And then this note. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so at some point, the Lord sends Nathan to David. And he comes with a story. Chapter 12, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He raised it, he he grew up with him and his children, it shared his food and his drink from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he had it prepared for the one who had come. David was a shepherd. Remember, he grew up as a shepherd. He loved sheep. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Okay, he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Have him give the man four lambs in place of that one pet lamb. And David sees that Nathan is not leaving. He's just standing there looking at David. And I wonder what the expression was on Nathan's face. It must have been a study. Dare he speak the word of God to this mighty king who could have him executed in a moment? Fortunately, Nathan is more afraid of God than he is of David. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. David, I would have given you more wives if that's what you wanted. Why have you done this? Verse 9, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Notice he does not say, 
why did you commit adultery with Absalom or with with Uriah's wife? Why did you take her? No, that's not what he says. He says, why did you despise the word of the Lord? Please. And we talked about this at length last night in our in our prayer meeting. My dear brother David Sampson brought this very much to the forefront. All sin rises out of the wicked nature of man despising the word of God. That is where sin arises and then flows forth into wicked actions. And then he's confronted with the facts. And by the way, God will always confront you with the bold facts. And when you repent, you better say all of the facts to Jesus because he knows them. He was watching. And you displeased him by what you did and what you said. You better identify it all. True repentance hides nothing from the from the word of the Lord. You struck Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. That's the bottom line. You killed Uriah. And you stole his wife. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all Israel. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now what has he just said? He has just said, The Lord has taken away your action. He has taken away the act of sin, taking Bathsheba, lying with her, stealing her, having Uriah the Hittite murdered. These were actions. These were actions done by David. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to take that away. But there is a penalty there's a consequence and you must pay that consequence because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt the son born to you will die and after Nathan had gone home the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife it does not say the child Bathsheba bore to David it says The child Uriah's wife bore to you. So the Lord struck the child, he became ill. And David pleads with God for the child's life. He fasts, he goes into the house, and he spends the night 
laying on the ground, and the elders of the household stood before him to get him up from the ground, but he refused. He would not eat any food. This goes on for seven days. And then the child dies. Everybody thinks he's going to harm himself. He is so distraught. But when he sees people talking, he knows the child has died. He stands up, he washes, he puts on the lotions, he changes his clothes, and he goes into the house of the Lord. He goes into the tabernacle of the Lord, and there he worships before God. He comforts his wife, Bathsheba, no longer the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She is now his wife. And of course, she is to conceive again and give birth to a child, David's child, this time. His name is Solomon. I'm not going to go into all the consequences, but what I want to do now in the few minutes we have left in this broadcast, I want to go directly to the prayer David prayed in Psalm 51. This is one of the most heartbreaking and honest prayers you will find in all of Scripture. He cries out, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, not unconditional love, his child has died. God does not love unconditionally. He loves unfailingly. Now, these words in the Hebrew, have mercy on me, literally means have affection, expressed affection for me. Come and moan over me because I am deeply wounded. I am broken before you. I don't know how I can live. Come and moan over my brokenness, O God. Come with unfailing love or come with a disposition to do something for me. I have to have something done for me, O God. Now, what I want to show you is what David was asking to be done for him. It was not simply the forgiveness of his actions. It was a second work of grace that he was asking to have done for him. Do this according to your great compassion. Literally in the Hebrew, your tender pity the tender pity that will do anything to redeem the one loved. David is going to ask for a double work of grace because he knows he is loved by God, not unconditionally, but unfailingly. He says, wash away all my iniquity. Literally, Put me in a tub of water and stomp on me with your feet and keep me stomping in there, walking on top of me. Put me through the ringer. Do whatever you have to do, O God, but get this iniquity out of my soul. Cleanse me, O God. 
cleanse, meaning literally make me bright and holy and innocent. Now you understand. You cannot make a man or a woman bright and holy and innocent by simply forgiving the actions they have committed. There must be a total transformation of the heart. There must be a second work of grace done. And he says, for I know my transgressions. Literally, I admit that's what I did. I did it. It's my fault. I'm responsible. Nobody made me do it. I did it. And my sin is before me. It is always before me. Against you, against you and you only, I have sinned. And I have done what is evil in your sight because I have despised your word. That is the most evil thing a man can do or a woman can do is to despise the word of the Lord to their hearts because out of that will flow the Bathsheba's. Out of that will flow the fornication. Out of that will flow the bitterness and the anger. Out of that will flow lying and cheating and stealing and drug addiction and every other kind of wickedness. It all flows out of despising the word of the Lord. So that you're proved right when you speak. You're right, God. I did it. I'm guilty. It's me. Until you're willing to come to a place before God where you're willing to weep before him and say, God, it's me. I did it. It's me. Do you understand? I just said two different things. I said, I did it. And then I said, it's me. There has to be a forgiveness a removal of what I did, and then there has to be a cleansing of me. Because you're the judge. And then it says in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth. And the word in the Hebrew is literally, Surely I was bent I was twisted, I was distorted at birth. I was sinful, I was bent, I was twisted from the time my mother conceived me. He was born bent, twisted. You were also born bent and twisted. And in you is also the potential for murder and fornication and adultery and every other evil thing. It all resides in our hearts. We could have all been a Hitler. The depths of degradation are in our hearts, born out of Adam. We're all guilty before God. 
and he acknowledges, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the unmost place. Sin flows out of despising the word of God from the inmost place of the human heart where there is hatred toward God. None of us are naturally inclined to righteousness or innocence before God. We are all inclined to hatred toward God. But there is that little opening of Genesis 3.15 where the potential to hate the devil is there and the potential is there to come before God and say, you've seen my actions and you've seen me. Now would you change me? Verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Cleanse. You only cleanse with hyssop, with blood. In other words, he's saying, unsin me. The literal meaning of cleanse, the literal Hebrew word, is unsin me. Then it says, wash me. The same word in the Hebrew for wash and cleanse translated in the NIV. And they both mean unsin me. He says unsin me twice. And I will be whiter than snow. Do you understand? David knows that there has to be a second work of grace in his heart. Or he could once more become a murderer a fornicator, an adulterer, a thief, a liar, a cheater. He knows that the action has been washed away. The Lord said, I have forgiven you. You're not going to die. I've taken care of the action. But David is saying, in my inmost being, I was twisted, I was bent, I was distorted when I was born. God, you have to do something about this inner place in my heart. This is why Wesley called it crisis sanctification. Crisis sanctification. No man comes to this dancing down the aisle saying, oh, hey, I want a second work of grace. Please, please, please. Are you kidding me? It's crisis sanctification. It's when finally unveiled to your eyes is the utter dark wickedness of your soul. And you see it. And it breaks you. It destroys you. It's not enough to be forgiven for actions. We have to be then unsinned. Unsinned. That we would no longer despise the word of the Lord. 
that despising of the word of Lord, that hatred toward God has to be removed from the very formation of our soul that we were born with. Cleanse me with hyssop. He knows that that only blood will wash away his action, but he also knows that only blood will work this second work of grace in his heart. Our sins are washed away as a gift of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are made innocent. We are straightened out in the inner part. We are remade in the inner part of our soul as a free gift of grace from Jesus Christ. It's not something we can do for ourselves. It is where a man comes, a woman comes and lays before the Lord, and out of the depths of their soul they cry out, Oh God, I see my ugliness. I see how how wretched I am. I see that there's nothing good that dwells in me. This was Paul's cry in Romans 7. And those lying teachers today want to say that the normal Christian life is Romans 7. I have news for you. Normal Christian life is Romans 8, not Romans 7. We were delivered by Jesus Christ. And now there needs to be not just a forgiveness for the actions There must be no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. We must be made into new creatures in Christ Jesus. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let me hear that you will do this work in me. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Blot out my twistedness. Create in me a pure heart, O God. David knew that only a new heart would suffice. You could not repair the old heart. It was too twisted. It was too dark. It was too bitter. Nowhere in Scripture is it taught that the heart can be renovated. You must have a new heart given to you by grace. You do not need the old heart covered up with make-believe grace. As long as you have an old heart still walking in sin, you are still a leper. You are still being raped and ravaged by the devil. No, you have to be made new. There has to be a new heart given to you. You must have the word of God. You must have the rules of heaven written on your heart so that when you're doing your own will as a new creation, you will be doing the will of God. That's the promise of the new covenant. Not that you will be ravaged by the devil and the blood of Jesus cannot deliver you. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's talking here about a willing spirit, not a bent spirit, not a spirit that continues to walk in rebellion against the Most High God. Notice, then he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Well, we want to go out and and immediately begin bringing people to Jesus and be successful and hailed as a great soul winner. Are you kidding me? You have to have that second work of grace done in your heart before you can do anything worthwhile for God. You have to be given a willing spirit, a spirit that will no longer despise the word of the Lord, a spirit that will no longer turn in rebellion against the Most High, a spirit that will not turn away from God. Then he says, Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. And, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. This is a man who now has a new heart. I ask Christians all the time, what is your testimony of Jesus in your life? And they look at me like I came from Mars. Because they have no testimony of being transformed and made righteous before God. All they can say is, I'm a sinner. But I'm not like everybody else because I've been forgiven. But I'm still a leper. Really? Is that the good news of the gospel? That you have to always walk in your sin? And they say it with such assurance. They say it with such articulate, educated words seductive words oh you're loved unconditionally by god and you're saved in the midst of your sin and he'll never kick you out of the family are you kidding me he says oh lord open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. In other words, you can't buy God off with religiosity. You can't buy God off by going to church and paying your tithe. You can't go to Mass day after day and think you've bought God off. He wants a work of grace. He wants your sin acknowledged and forgiven and made righteous. And he wants the second work of grace accomplished in your heart. He says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That is, a spirit that has burst. Burst into splinters. The sacrifice that God wants from you is that you will have this sinful, bent nature utterly blown up. I saw a video in the news recently 
I think it was in France, where a huge house-sized boulder had come down on a highway, and it was far too big to move in any traditional way. And they bored holes in it, filled it with dynamite, and blew it up. And it was blown into small pieces that could be shoveled out with a bulldozer. And the road was opened. That old bent nature of yours has to be blown up. Burst. That's literally what the word broken in the Hebrew means. It means to burst, to reduce, to be blown out, to be made splinters. He wants a blown up old nature. And he wants a contrite heart. The word contrite means to be beat out thin. To be flattened. No more pride. We're too big. We're too big to acknowledge that we must have a a second work of grace done in our hearts. Oh God, you will not despise. Then he says, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. In other words, make the place of holiness prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices. Nobody trying to play religion, nobody trying to buy God off. But instead, men and women who no longer boast of evil. No longer people who are a disgrace to God. And I have to just stop and ask you today. Have you despised the word of the Lord and are you a disgrace to Jesus? Because you say you're a Christian but you've never experienced the second work of grace? Then you are ashamed to Jesus. You are a disgrace to his name. Because you believe you can continue to walk in your sin and you're still saved. That is despising the word of the Lord. Do not despise the word of the Lord. Some of you need to be put in the tub and stomped on by Jesus until there's a bright and clean heart. Your actions need to be forgiven, but your heart must be utterly burst. You must have a new heart. You must have the twistedness of your soul straightened out. I remember one summer. We're almost out of time, but let me say this quickly. I remember one summer our landlord said, look, you want to build a garage on your house, Matt? That was my father. Yes. Well, let me help you. There's a barn over here next door on another property I own. If you'll tear that barn down, you can have all the wood and the nails to build your garage. And dad said, it's a done deal. And that summer we tore down that old barn 
and I was too small, so what Dad did is give me a piece of railroad iron and a hammer, and it was my job to straighten the nails. I pounded my thumb so many times. I bloodied my fingers so many times. My mother said, Matt, that's too hard a job for Ray. And Dad said, no, it's not. He's learning how to get things straight in his life. the second work of grace that God wants to do in you. Almighty God, will you confront every person listening to this broadcast with the desperate necessity of the second work of grace, of going all the way with you and having that twisted and bent heart straightened out, burst, humbled, made new. Lord, thank you. I pray in your name. Amen. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel. I make no apology. This is an unvarnished, straight gospel message that you need to heed and do not despise the word of the Lord again. Please go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com if you're on Twitter follow us and please get in the prayer closet and deal with Jesus go to nationalprayerchapel.com there you'll find many podcasts and videos that will help you on this journey God bless you my brother my sister I love you I'll talk to you soon Set you blameless before the presence of.